21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik. What was the story behind the photo you used in your Forbes article? So you are standing beside the giraffe in what appears to be a residential yard. Is it yours? Giraffe and yard? Not my giraffe, not my yard. Ah, no. no. That's a... Um, <laughs> okay. It's a wildlife sanctuary that I like to try to support here and there and, and promote here and there. It's a place called the uh, Wildlife Learning Center in Silmar, California. They take a lot of animals from the exotic pet trade that people buy because they think they're cool, but they have no idea how to take care of them. And they'll they'll actually like take care of them. It's almost a mini, a mini like private zoo. And, um, you know, I try to go there a couple times a year and, and donate and also um, just go through and hang out with animals. You get just a really cool hands-on experience. Good energy, huh? Yeah, it's a good time. So in that photo though, the strategic nature of that particular photo was, you know, how can we stand out a little bit more and stop the scroll? And how can we get more clicks on this article on Forbes if the, the image is being presented? And um, I had a number of different ones that I sent them and that was the one they approved. Choosing a business to develop with the intent of having an exit strategy in place, is it is it possible? And if it is, what criteria should entrepreneurs consider as they make this critical decision? It's not only possible, I would recommend it basically every time. Um, and, and the reason for that is if you think about what an exitable business is, uh, it's basically a transferable asset that is mechanical enough operationally and creates the reliable results every week, every month, everyone's well-trained, everything is working as it's supposed to be. There's always opportunity for growth, but the business is humming along like a machine. Um, that is what acquirers want. They don't want a project unless you have some sort of really incredible intellectual property and by and large in software it's a little bit difficult to come up with something like that in comparison to inventions physical products hardware etc and, and through that lens any exitable business that's truly an exitable business is also just a really good business for a founder to continue to own if they just want to sit back and be in the investor seat and just have dividend checks sent to them every month they can install a ceo and continue to contribute, but on their terms. So oftentimes when I'll work with companies to build an exitable business, I mean, oftentimes they'll come and they're just on fire and things are, are really difficult and they want to sell just because they want out and they want out from under that burden. Well, when we do the things that are required to actually exit that company, oftentimes they find that they don't want to sell anymore because they're not experiencing that level of pain. So now it becomes a situation where they can choose when and if they want to exit, if the, the terms are good enough, but the leverage is back in their hands. And there is there is still a pretty huge percentage uh, in, in the States, especially of companies that failed in, in exit strategy. Most of them, yeah, yeah about 98% of, yeah. of them probably at least, maybe more. And and I would say that is in large part because a lot of people will start businesses, one, because of their own idea, 
And two, they don't begin with the end in mind. So they just say, I want to be my own boss and make my own money and that sort of thing and be employed under my own terms. How can entrepreneurs ensure their business will be attractive to potential buyers? Number one, don't fall in love with the financial outcome in the short term or the medium term, because the financial outcome doesn't help you drive strategy. It doesn't help you make decisions. There are a million ways to make money, but there are only a few ways to truly deliver a specific kind of value to a specific kind of customer. If rather than starting something because you get obsessed with an idea, instead you get obsessed with a type of customer and you get incredibly curious as to what problems they're experiencing and who is solving them to what degree, if anybody, and what value that solution could create for them, which you can do through structured customer interviews early on in the process. Um, that sort of thing, in my opinion, is, is the right way. And if you see business growth and revenue growth as a lagging indicator of delivering ongoing and greater and greater product value to a greater and greater stable of customers, it usually is a more deterministic outlook because you're able to think about your decisions through a more narrow lens, meaning rather than what can we do to make more money this month, it's what could we do to, to deepen this specific type of value our customers are coming to us for. And if you're able to plant the flag in the ground and say, this is how we think, Everything, you know, from your product decisions to your sales decisions, to your marketing decisions, to your administrative decisions, everything in between just becomes a lot more clear. And when you, when you just started, what were your most significant risks, challenges when, when transitioning from, from professional sports to entrepreneurship? My most significant challenges when when kind of transforming from someone in sports to someone in entrepreneurship, first and foremost, I had no entrepreneurial education. So I was used to a structured life that was given to me, basically coach or someone that was designing a training program for athletics would basically tell you at this time of day, you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And your entire day, for the most part, every day is architected in a really strategic way. But that fate isn't always, or even mostly in your hands, that comes down to someone else who's making those decisions, allowing you, the athlete, to tune into the instruction and the process, et cetera. And in a lot of ways, you're the client. You're not the business owner. They are. So the biggest transition for me was taking control of the structure of my day and making sure that it was very clearly pointing to the specific outcome that I wanted. Um, structure for structure's sake is, is nothing, but structure for the sake of creating specific outcomes can be everything. Um, so that would, I would say that was the biggest, the biggest transition is kind of taking control rather than just following instructions. Usual question is what you can take from sports. So I suppose structure is one of very important things, maybe focusing, persistency, Loving, learning to love the process was a big aspect of, of sports that translated over to, to business. If you're only focused on the outcomes as an entrepreneur, you're going to be miserable. Uh, if you love the process of, of solving problems, knowing that business itself 
is a never ending quest of solving problems. If you think of them as problems, you're going to live a miserable existence. If you think of them as fun puzzles to solve that are intellectually stimulating, but there is a solution and you have to discover it, that becomes a much more fun journey. And just being able to get obsessed with problem solving and learning to condition your mind to enjoy that level of, of intellectual challenge is a superpower, in my opinion. I, I really think that a lot of people look at business and they say, I'm sure it's going to get easier and things are going to get, I mean, it's, things are going to not be exploding all the time. Well, if you're growing, they should be. It's kind of the symptom of growing a business is, is having things break because as you grow, your systems will not scale to that next level in a linear fashion. Every, every system breaks down every time you triple the throughput for the most part, unless you've over-engineered it completely, in which case you're already in a broken place because you're slow. Um, so the trick is to build your systems so that they'll only take you to the, the stage where you can triple the throughput and then expect it to break down a little bit before or a little bit after that. And if you know that in advance, you're signing up for and accepting that you're gonna go through a never ending stream of problems. And if you can set your expectations accordingly, it will not be nearly as excruciating. And what is your approach to the systems? Do you sometimes visualize uh, document flows, information flows for, for a certain meta level? Do you immerse the system into the context? I've been obsessed for the better part of the last decade with coming up with what physicists would describe as a unified theory of everything, but in business specifically. I've been wanting to create a playbook that is modular enough that you could just deploy it into almost any business and be able to just follow steps that themselves are deterministic as to what you do next. And I've found that to be possible, but not in the way that I expected. I found that it was the frameworks themselves that were perennial and, and modular. The tactics are not. The tactics will decay very quickly. So for example, things like you know, specific types of funnels or you know, advertising strategy or different ways of implementing certain pieces of, of strategic planning, um, those are all fleeting for the most part. And you may notice this if you buy a book that teaches a specific methodology. There is a book on my shelf here, on one of my shelves here somewhere. A book called Designing for Emotion by Aaron Walter. And if you look inside the book, it'll show you photos of websites that are incredibly outdated. Um, and a lot of tactical level books, that by the time they hit the shelves, the information is old and you can't really use them. And then the more time that elapses, the more 
redundant or the more pointless that book becomes. However, if you read a book or take a course or consume information around a strategy or kind of a philosophy around various aspects of business, the tactics themselves, you can plug in and unplug as you need to, as long as they're just a specific way to achieve a specific action dictated by the strategy. And our mod, by the way, the models that I build now for companies are, I've only been able to figure it out for subscription-based companies so far, for companies, for other companies that are transactional. Um, I just haven't had enough reps in, in the seats to understand how to plug those economics in appropriately. So it's a, it's a different game to some degree, and I haven't dedicated myself to solving that problem yet. But for a subscription-based business, I'll typically start with the market, the model, the channels, and the product and I'll figure out how or how they don't fit together. Usually that provides me clues of where to start the process. If it's an existing business or a brand new one, 99% of the time there's something that doesn't fit within that, within that ecosystem. All those things need to fit together. Most people talk about product market fit, but most people don't talk about things like you know, channel product fit or um, model market fit, things like that, right? And Brian Balfour does a great job of explaining this. Uh, he's a, one of the former VPs of growth at HubSpot, current CEO of Reforge. They have some really good information uh, on this specific area. And some of the other stuff in their process, I'm, I'm not as much of a fan of, but um, I have consumed basically everything they have over the years. And you know they're really, really smart. And I've tried to combine that with some of the thinking from the top growth leads and uh, growth focused CEOs in Silicon Valley and in the highest growth companies elsewhere around the world. And by combining the spirit of that information into a specific system, I can now I'm able to deploy that, you know, basically any company that either I work with or I start. Um, and that's usually almost always where I start is with those four categories. And from there, build the growth model or the, the first hypothesized growth model. Uh, from there, we build the strategy. From there, we create a series of experiments. And from there, we get tactical with how we implement those. And that's where most people start, which is a huge mistake. Most people start with tactical implementation and try to back in to some of these other areas. They'll try a whole bunch of different things and hope that one of them works. Can you share example of, of a few reference points like, like KPIs or? The way to think about it, the way that I like to think about this is, and the way that I'll, I'll work with companies to think about it, whether it's I'm a growth mentor for some of the top accelerated programs in Silicon Valley, and whether it's one of my own companies or somebody that I invest in, something like that. Um, I will almost always work on a growth model that creates exponential outcomes or that's designed to create exponential outcomes. If we can't create exponential outcomes, we want them to be um, self-driving outcomes, which means you know, if we, we, we want to build a model that doesn't require you to pour in a ton of outside capital to keep it running always, you may need some of that up front um, just if you want to move faster, but the intent is to make each of those channels that you choose or each of those 
Um, you know, some growth leads call these loops, each of the loops that you build. And, and I was able to uh, write a book on viral loops back in 2018. I've been studying, you know, growth loops for you know, the last 10 years. And um, because of that, basically we'll take a look at a specific type of value a company wants to provide. And within that, figure out, okay, based on your model, what channels or what tactics are available to you based on the relative cost of those tactics. From there, we will look at ways to build a product for those channels and not the other way around. You can't, you don't really have control of the channels themselves. Um, so you have to build a product with those channels in mind, with those distribution methods in mind. Um, so if, if we're doing the growth modeling, basically one thing that I would say, like, let's say, for example, we're thinking about a viral loop and we're thinking specifically about collaboration virality, which is the act of inviting others to a product with you with the intent of achieving a common goal together. It doesn't feel like marketing, but you are using your customers to acquire new customers for you. If you're able to go through and optimize that flow by ensuring there's always a reason why that one of those people should take that action and there's an answer to why they should take it right now, oftentimes what you'll find is you don't have to have the tired linear channel approaches. You can just use those to artificially spin that viral loop faster and then eventually it takes over. Or at the very least, it does enough to get you a dramatic discount on you know, your ad spend or your outbound sales efforts if you're doing you know outbound appointment setting and so forth or you know if you're um building a content engine your your cost per piece then is, is reduced quite a bit um so that's you know the the or your return on content increases quite a bit usually is what actually happens there the traditional kpi that you think about with that particular loop let's say for example your dropbox and Dropbox early on tried paid marketing and it failed and it tried paid referral programs and they failed. And what they found was users were coming to Dropbox for a specific type of value, which was collaborative cloud storage. And uh, what they found was if they put that collaboration at the forefront and they said, yes, you can get this cloud storage, but you can also share access to that cloud storage. And they really emphasized that piece of the viral loop. What they found was that loop would spin really fast. So if your KPIs kind of look like a, a cyclical, you know, flowchart that continues to spin rather than a funnel, which is just a linear path, um, which I think is a mistake outside of you know, temporary artificial linear channel efforts to speed things up. Um, you know, step one might be you know, uh, new user signups. Step two might be the number of those new users who have uploaded files to the cloud. Step three might be sending out invites to others to collaborate. Step four might be invite acceptance. Step five might be new users, right? So you have this like connected loop. Every single time then, if you, for example, artificially feed that loop with traffic from another source, every single user that comes on will then inevitably in all likelihood if they've reached their aha moment send multiple invites which is called a viral branching factor so through that lens for every user that you feed into the system they then bring new users to you it's the consumer facing equivalent 
of a sales pipeline, like an inside sales pipeline that only sells to value-added resellers. And regarding those frameworks, uh, frameworks and tactics, AI, okay, it's a, it's a question that we need all to start asking. So is it frameworks for AI and t- tactics for, for human beings or, or yeah. what's the... Great question. Great question. So this is what some of my doctoral studies are around, um, around the uh, collaboration between human and artificial intelligence through the specific lens of marketing and growth. And uh, these two researchers, Huang and Roth, came out with this really awesome study in 2021 that architected a just a framework for thinking about AI in the lens of marketing. And it is very tactical. I I think it, it does not, at this point in time, I have not seen an AI that's able to build growth models. In fact, that's exactly what we're, we're, we're building right now. Um, but what we have found is there are a lot of AIs that can help with the economics of implementation, which can dramatically improve certain things. Like, for example, let's say you have uh, a, a user-generated company distributed content loop, which is an inbound growth loop where, I mean, let's say LinkedIn, for example, Early, early days of LinkedIn before all their professional suite of tools and they could have sales teams, they had B2C economics. They, the only channels that their economics allowed them to utilize were B2C virality, which they did through their network effects, invite other companies to collaborate with you in your network. And two, it was user-generated content. Come on LinkedIn, create your personal profile, create your company profile, et cetera. And by doing that, what LinkedIn got is they could then auto package and index all of that content for search. So over the course of time, as they got hundred users, a thousand users, they now had a footprint on the internet so that if someone Googled your name, their LinkedIn would pop up. If someone Googled your company, your company's LinkedIn would pop up. So over time, as they feed that machine, the breadth of that content grows and just continues to have that loop spin faster. So, um, Through the lens of AI, for example, let's say you had um, a company-generated content loop where you're building a a blog, you're creating content for your socials, um, things along those lines, right? You're building a newsletter. One of the factors within your viral loop, one of your variables that you have to account for is the cost per piece and the return on content. And if you just look at that junction and you look in, in a growth model that's built by an expert that factors all these things in and shows multiple loops stacked up over time, if you reduce the cost of content production by 50%, if you reduce the cost of creating that content and you, it, you'll, you'll thereby increase the return, the relative return on that content, and you can get those loops to spin really, really fast. And, and the, the cycle time of each loop is the exponent in the equation. Let's say a lot of companies get obsessed with this CAC to LTV ratio, for example, right? Cost, customer acquisition cost, lifetime value. Let's say there's one company that has a, a 10 to 1 CAC to LTV ratio, and you have another company that has a 4 to 1 CAC to LTV ratio. If you just give that information, most people will think that the 10 to 1 CAC to LTV ratio company is the one that they want to run. But if that, if that time horizon required to get that 10 to 1 ratio takes 12 months and the four to one takes three months, you're taking the, the, the four to one every single time because that loop can spin four times and it gets exponentially larger every single time. So your outcome is, is much, much bigger. So factoring in speed 
is another aspect of what this AI, like generative AI wave can, can help with. But Huang and Roth, the reason I bring that up, Huang and Roth came up with a framework that said the, the three waves you'll see of AI are mechanical AI, which are you know, just execution of tasks. Things like generative AI, producing content would be the execution of tasks. The next level is thinking AI where you ingest large data sets and you make a set of strategic decisions based on the constraints the human who built the system came up with. And that's that next level where you can basically say, all right, based on all the information that we have available to us, what is the best possible decision we can make so that X happens? And if you define X, thinking AI can use an incredibly quantitative approach to do that. Now, obviously the missing piece there is the qualitative approach. And it's part of the qualitative nature of human beings and why we make decisions are from emotions. So that third layer is feeling AI. That's when you get into your sentiment analysis. That's when you get into blending the thinking and feeling AI to say, how can I acknowledge the emotion that the human based on their behavior is likely to be experiencing in this moment? And what do we predict the emotion needs to be for that human to make the decision we need them to make? And then how do we use our thinking AI to bridge the gap and create the necessary steps for execution that our mechanical AI can take over to create the conditions to bring someone from emotion X to emotion Y. And if that can happen, you've suddenly replaced humans almost in their entirety in that particular instance. And the, it kind of enables the humans then to jump up a level or two and think about bigger picture, more complex systems. So I've been starting and scaling and selling technology companies for the last 14 years. In that time, I've sold eight of them. Some of them I can't talk about. The most recent one we did sell for just shy of 70 million and it was a fun three-year ride. What that entire journey has taught me is that there is a specific defined process that can work for nearly any business as long as you've got subscription mechanics in place or you're open to implementing them. What we do now is we work with companies to either train their existing growth leads, train them as growth leads in our methods, those, those founders, or we place a pre-trained growth lead into their business to run their growth ops through the lens of the system that I've then been able to create with the help of some of the top growth leads on earth. And we've been doing that for a little while now. It's been really, really incredibly, just the, the outcomes we've been able to create have been fascinating and they've worked for me. This is the first time I've actually taken these methods and helped others with them. This is something that I kept selfishly for the last 14, 15 years and have used successfully. And now it's just time to spread it to, to more people. So what we're building is called growthteam.ai. The intention is to implement the necessary strategies to enable human beings to think in the right way. And when we get to the tactical implementation, we also train folks to utilize AI to assist with the economics of implementation within the correct growth model and strategy that can enable companies' rapid growth. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.